0: We're going to head back to Matthew, the book of Matthew, where we were before the Advent season. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, that's on page 826. Let me start with this picture that might be familiar to many of you. Look busy, the boss is coming. Start picking up. Mom's coming downstairs. Hopefully both of these are familiar to you. This idea of knowing you're going to have to be accountable for what you were doing, but instead of actually really doing the thing, it's enough to look like you're doing the thing. I think we've all been there when we've thought our best option is to look busy. To look like we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. But if we're honest with ourselves, that activity is pretty shallow and isn't really real at all. If you can look busy, then you don't necessarily have to be doing your job for the boss to think that you are. If you look like you're doing your chores, you might be able to fool your mom or dad, but probably not, don't try it. To some people out there that might need to hear that. Today's text picks up after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And if you want to, I'm not going to preach that. Again, I did that last year. If you want to go back in our archives, you can listen to that sermon. But one of the things that connects the two parts of our passage today is this idea of appearing like you're doing something when in fact you're not at all. And it's important to see this overarching theme because we're also going to have two examples of passages in the Bible that are either misused or that are just plain confusing. And because of this, it's helpful to look at them together. That what holds these two passages together is of something appearing one way, but really not being that thing at all. And so in the first part of our text, we're going to see the appearance of worship but really there's no true worship going on. And in the second part, we're going to see the appearance of faith, but no real faith at all. And intermixed into that will be some images of what true worship and true faith actually do look like. So let's look at the first part of our passage, again Matthew 21, beginning in verse 12, and we're going to see this this pairing of both false and true worship. Let's begin by looking at verses 12 to 13. "...and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons." He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. We're not given many details, but in verse 12, Matthew condenses a whole lot of action. So we see that Jesus entered the temple, he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold pigeons. Now, before we dive into the details of this text, let me say something that I've noticed about this text and how people use it. I remember laughing really hard many years ago now. See, I can say the phrase old meme now. We've had the internet that long. But the old meme went something like this. If someone asks, what would Jesus do? Remind them that that turning over tables and breaking out whips is a possibility. And it was sort of reacting to this idea that Jesus is sort of this bland, nice guy who never got angry, who never raised his voice, but in fact there were times where he got angry. But then there created this other problem where people really focused on how angry Jesus got and used it to rationalize, baptize, and spiritualize their own anger that they were feeling. And so we see we have to be really careful with how we deal with and apply these passages. That yes, we can see that Jesus was a real person who got angry at sin. But we also have to be careful not to manipulate Scripture into what we want it to be to rationalize our own bad behavior. And to help us avoid misusing... Scripture, it's important to get precise about what it is saying and what its main point is. The main point of this passage is not Jesus' anger. This is more than just Jesus getting mad that people were selling things in the temple area. If, If that's all that it was... The only application would be let's never have a bake sale in the church building. You see, it's helpful to step into the shoes of the people who did these things because they actually had a better rationalization than it looks like at first. We're helped by this detail, those who sold pigeons. This helps us to see that the people who were selling in the temple were as one Commentator writes, they were selling what was needed for sacrifices, animals, wood, oil, etc., especially for pilgrims from afar. And those money changers, the money changers converted the standard Greek and Roman currency into temple currency in which the half-shekel temple tax had to be paid. So when we step back and we see, oh, they, they had a really pragmatic reason for doing this. It sort of changes how we view the text. I want to be a little anachronistic here, and I want you to picture a temple consultant. We have lots of consultants in our world today. So picture the leaders of the temple. They call in a consultant, and the consultant observes people being in town from, from far away, and they, they can't bring their supplies for the temple. They've got to buy them there. But then if they buy it, In the regular market, then they got to take it all the way up to the temple. And the consultant says to the people in charge, you know what would be better and easier for everybody? Just sell the stuff here. You have so much room, and it would be so much more efficient. Right? Do you see how you could rationalize this behavior that Jesus will, in fact, judge? through his actions. I want you to keep that picture in your mind, this idea of the temple consultant, because I want to come back to it later. But before we do, I want to look at Jesus' words after he overturned the temple, or after he overturned the tables, excuse me. Verse 13. He said to them, It is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Here Jesus has two quotes that he puts together, the first from Isaiah 56.7. Isaiah 56.7 says this, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And then the second quotation is from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7 says this, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, as oftentimes when we see an Old Testament quotation, it's good to read the larger context of that quotation, and particularly the quote from Jeremiah is helpful. Let me read an excerpt from earlier in the passage in Jeremiah 7. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, And go after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered only to go on doing all those abominations. That then leads into that verse 11, saying they've made it into a den of robbers. See, it wasn't just the selling that made it into a den of robbers. It was a deeper problem. That even though the people were saying the right words, this is the temple of the Lord, and they were doing the activities of temple worship, God says their lives were full of unrepentant sin and idol worship. Instead of being a place for worship and prayer for all peoples, The temple had become a place of empty religious activity. The people of Jeremiah's time thought God would keep them from judgment while they gave the appearance of worship. But in reality, they were in complete rebellion against God. Do you see how this is more than just a problem of selling supplies in the temple? I appreciate what one of the commentators writes concerning this. The temple was not fulfilling its God-ordained role as witness to the nations, but had become, like the first temple, the premier symbol of superstitious belief that God would protect and rally his people, irrespective of their conformity to his will. Jesus cleansed the temple Because the practice of selling sacrifice supplies and changing money were signs that the people were performing the exterior acts of worship when in reality their hearts were far from God. It's a basic truth that performing the actions of worship do not on their own make you right with God. What makes you right with God is repenting of your sins and placing your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. And from there, you can engage in the true worship of God. Now, we're going to see that made explicit in the next part of the story. That what really matters is what you believe about Jesus and that he is the true object of your worship. But before we get to those verses, I want to go back... To the, church, to the temple consultant. I think there's a secondary application to us here that speaks to how we do church. You know, we live in a world full of consultants, even, even having church consultants. And these people can be very useful in helping churches to identify blind spots in how they are acting as churches. Churches. But one of the mistakes that can happen is to elevate the pragmatic over the godly. And there is a category of error where we equate efficiency with godliness. You see this when people are more concerned about what the bylaws say than what the Bible says. And I think this story can be a warning that we need to be careful and discerning about what we borrow from the corporate or governmental worlds. That you can see how moving the shops into the temple made sense, how it might be described as best practices. And even though the intentions were probably good at the beginning, it prevented the true worship of God in that place and allowed the mere appearance of worship to flourish, how we do church needs to promote true worship of God, not merely the appearance of it and how do we do that by centering what we do as a church on Jesus christ let 's look at verses fourteen to seventeen because we have this example of false. Worship. But now we're going to see this neat, unexpected example of true worship. Verses 14 to 17. And the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Here we see true worship in receiving Jesus for who he really was. We see this in two ways. After clearing the temple, Matthew tells us that the blind and the lame came to them and he healed them. We've seen this before where people demonstrate their faith by coming to Jesus for healing. But even more so, children take center stage in this part of the story they keep the party going from the earlier parade. Remember, this is right after Palm Sunday, the story of Palm Sunday. And so the children, they probably don't know the parade's over yet. And they cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now just as a reminder, Hosanna means save us. As is seen in Psalm 118 and that is put together with this idea of Son of David. Jesus is the Son of David, which we know from Scripture is one of the ways to talk about Jesus as the promised Savior sent by God. And so you have these sick people coming to Jesus for healing, and you have the children declaring that Jesus is the promised Savior. And what is the response of the chief priests and the scribes? They were indignant. And so they asked Jesus, Do you hear? what these are saying. Their response is not to join the children in recognizing Jesus as the promised Savior. Their response is anger and saying, Jesus, are you you listening to this? Are you hearing this? Probably with the assumed, are you going to stop it? Look at Jesus' response. Yes, Yes, he's heard it. (laughs) Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Now, part of the answer is a quotation from Psalm 8, verse 2. But I also love how he begins this quotation Have you never read? Jesus says to the religious leaders Have you not read your Bible? As one commentator writes out about this, Jesus calls out the theor- theological ignorance of the Scripture experts. You know, it's a humbling thing that, that even Bible knowledge can be superficial. These people were experts in the Scriptures, but they're obviously not believing what they know. Because if they would have believed it, they would have believed in Jesus. It's another call to humble faith with this contrast of the Jewish leaders actively rejecting Jesus, even with all of the evidence in front of them. The healings and even the fulfilled scriptures, and yet they still reject. There's also this very neat layer to the fact that Jesus uses children to speak the truth to the powerful adults around them. It's another example of God using the humble and the lowly to shame the proud and the powerful. Again, one of the commentaries is helpful here. The humble perceive spiritual truths more readily than the sophisticated The children have picked up the cry of the earlier procession and, lacking inhibition and skepticism, enthusiastically repeat the chant, arriving at the truth more quickly than those who think themselves wise and knowledgeable. Jesus rebukes the leaders, calls them to childlike faith, and affirms the truth that the children joyfully proclaim. And it is here that we see true worship. True worship happens when the truth about Jesus is at the center. Where true faith in Jesus exists. You can do all the actions of worship, give the appearance of worship, but if the truth that Jesus is the promised Savior is not at the center, then your worship is fake and false and worthless. True worship is only found in worshiping Jesus as the promised Savior. So let's move to the second part of our passage. And again, we're going to have the same dynamic, but with faith. And we're going to see false and true faith. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Just to give a little geographic context that will be helpful later. Verse 18 tells us that as he was entering the city. And verse 17 had told us that Jesus stayed the night in Bethany. And this tells us that this story likely happens on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, which will be helpful when we get to the mountain in verse 21. He's talking about the Mount of Olives that they're standing on. So as Jesus heads back into Jerusalem, Matthew tells us that he became hungry. Let me read verse 19 again. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to him, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And again, if you read this in isolation, you might just think that Jesus was hangry. Or that the application is followers of Jesus should always be prepared and bring a snack with them as they travel. This is why it's important to read it in the context of the temple cleansing. This is more than grumpy Jesus. Again, there's a call for precision. Look how the fig tree is described. He went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. Now thankfully, scholars, commentators, and fig farmers help us to understand why this is important. See, we know that fig leaves are a sign that there are figs. And this tree has leaves, but no actual fruit. One of the commentators summarizes this, the tree made a show of life that promised fruit, yet was bearing none. It gave the appearance that it had fruit, but upon closer inspection, there was no fruit. This is where we can look back at a larger view of scripture and remember that bearing fruit is a common way that the bible talks about living a godly life or doing good works. Think of the fruit of the spirit, by the way, sign up for women's bible study. Think of the vine and the branches in John chapter 15. It's a common biblical metaphor that the good works, the godly things God has given us to do are the fruit Of our lives. Think of it this way from a distance, the tree gives every sign of life. But when you look closer, there is not any fruit at all. We might call this judgment on hypocritical piety, which has the appearance of godliness without the action fruit of godliness. To use the language of the book of James, a faith that does not produce food, fruit, a faith that does not produce good works, is dead. It is, in fact, no faith at all. Do you see the parallels to the hypocritical worship of the first part and the hypocritical faith here? The mere appearance does not match the reality But let's see what Jesus says about this. Look at verses 20 to 22. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith faith. Matthew tells us that the disciples marveled at what had happened to the fig tree. But one of the interesting things I think about Jesus' response is that it's not exactly symmetrical with his judgment of the fig tree. Right? We see in the fig tree the promise of judgment on the person who does not have true faith, which is evidenced by lack of fruit. But in this teaching moment with the disciples, Jesus doesn't speak about how if you have faith, you will have much fruit. Though he makes that argument elsewhere in a place like John 15. But interestingly, in contrast to a fruitless faith, Jesus draws their attention to the actual power of faith in prayer. In this passage, the judgment that comes from no faith is contrasted with the power of prayer because of faith. So Jesus says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will be able to do what has been done to the fig tree and even command this mountain to be taken up and thrown into the sea. Now, this is not a picture of being able to do faith-based magic, but it is a picture of the power of prayer. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, as I mentioned with the earlier parts of this passage, I've also seen this part of the passage abused and misunderstood. On the one hand, yes, trust and faith in God is a muscle that grows with use. But the true strength of faith is not in our effort, but in the object of our faith. Our faith only has power because our faith is in Jesus And this puts clear guardrails around whatever you ask in prayer. But just as a lack of true faith can bring judgment, we can have joy and confidence in prayer that is offered in faith. When our faith is in Jesus, we can pray big prayers and have confidence in those prayers. You know, there's some pretty great parallels between this passage and the book of James. As I mentioned earlier, the, the lack of fruit connects very well with James talking about faith without works. But James also talks about this idea of the power of faith offered in off the power of prayer offered in faith. Excuse me. Let me read you a slightly longer passage from James chapter five. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. If you want to go and if you're not familiar with that story, you can read the story of Elijah found in 1 Kings chapters 17 and 18. But I want to focus on from this passage for us today in light of Matthew's passage. is this idea that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was not a magician or a mutant. He was a regular person. And one of the reasons his prayers were recorded was to show us the power of prayer that is offered in true faith. You don't have to be super spiritual, you don't have to say the magic words. Jesus points his disciples and points us to one of the gifts of our faith is that God hears our prayers. And when our faith is actually in Jesus, not just in our ability to perform religious activities so people think we have faith, when we offer prayers In faith, we can have confidence in our prayers, knowing that God acts for our good and his glory. A couple thoughts as we close up this morning. Number one, be a discerning reader of Scripture. As I've mentioned throughout the sermon today, we have different examples of texts that can easily be manipulated and misused. This especially happens when we want the text to say something, and we just try to inject it in. We must watch our own hearts from using Scripture to condone what we already want to do. But it calls for wisdom and a careful reading of Scripture and the surrounding context so that we can be clear about what God is and isn't saying in these texts. Secondly, more to the content of the passage, religious activity is not the same as true worship. We can look busy, but have hearts that are far from God. The people of the temple market probably looked like they were worshiping, but they were just selling supplies. True worship has as its foundation the cries of the children at the temple Hosanna to the Son of David. If our worship is not truly based on the fact that Jesus is the promised Savior, then we are just going through the motions. Today, place your faith in Jesus as the promised Savior and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Thirdly, faith without works. Is dead. In the cursing of the fig tree, we see a plant that appeared like it was alive, but it had no fruit. Good works do not produce salvation, but salvation will produce good works. How do you know if something's a fig tree? It's got figs on it. How do you know if someone is a true believer in Jesus? They'll have a life full of the fruit of good works. And finally, number four, faith empowers prayer. In contrast to the lack of true faith, Jesus then points his disciples to the gift of prayer. Prayer that is offered in faith. And while we must recognize that we must pray according to God's will, we should be encouraged to pray boldly from this text. Pray big and pray confidently because of the object of your faith. It's not the strength of your faith. It's strength of the one in whom you have your faith. We can pray boldly, and confidently, because our faith is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning, that we would be serious students of your word, that we would not just give the appearance of following you, but that we would truly worship you and truly place our faith in you. God, that we would be encouraged to pray from this text that we would not neglect prayer but that we would offer prayer in sincere faith to you knowing that you will work for our good and your glory we pray this in Jesus name amen thanks for watching this video from hillside evangelical free church our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Green Bank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.